A wise legal scholar famously said of the First Amendment's free speech clause, your right to swing your arms ends just where the other person's nose begins. In 2012, the nationwide arts and crafts chain Hobby Lobby Stores, Inc. sued the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, claiming that the Affordable Care Act's requirement that employment-based health care plans cover certain contraceptive methods violated the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as well as the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment. The owners of Hobby Lobby argued that requiring them to provide the means by which their employees could obtain contraceptive methods that they consider to be seriously immoral forced them to choose between exercising their religious beliefs and avoiding severe financial penalties. When the case made its way before the Supreme Court, the question was whether the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 permitted a for-profit company like Hobby Lobby to deny its employees health care coverage of commonly used FDA-approved contraceptives based on the religious beliefs of the company's owners. In a highly controversial decision, the court said yes. And now the 2014 dissenting opinion of Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor, joined by Justices Breyer and Kagan, as to all but Part 3C1 in Burwell v. Hobby Lobby Stores. Justice Ginsburg, with whom Justice Sotomayor joins, and with whom Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan join as to all but Part 3C1. Dissenting. In a decision of startling breadth, the court holds that commercial enterprises, including corporations, along with partnerships and sole proprietorships, can opt out of any law, saving only tax laws. They judge incompatible with their sincerely held religious beliefs. Compelling governmental interests in uniform compliance with the law and disadvantages that religion-based opt-outs impose on others hold no sway. The court decides at least when there is a less restrictive alternative. And such an alternative, the court suggests, there always will be whenever, in lieu of tolling an enterprise claiming a religion-based exemption, the government, i.e., the general public, can pick up the tab. The court does not pretend that the First Amendment's Free Exercise Clause demands religion-based accommodations so extreme, for our decisions leave no doubt on that score. Instead, the court holds that Congress, in the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, RFRA, dictated the extraordinary religion-based exemptions 
today's decision endorses. In the court's view, RFRA demands accommodation of a for-profit corporation's religious beliefs, no matter the impact that accommodation may have on third parties who do not share the corporation owner's religious faith. In these cases, thousands of women employed by Hobby Lobby and Conestoga or dependents of persons those corporations employ. Persuaded that Congress enacted RFRA to serve a far less radical purpose, and mindful of the havoc the court's judgment can introduce, I dissent. Part 1 The ability of women to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation has been facilitated by their ability to control their reproductive lives. Congress acted on that understanding when, as part of a nationwide insurance program intended to be comprehensive, it called for coverage of preventive care responsive to women's needs. Carrying out Congress's direction, the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, in consultation with public health experts, promulgated regulations requiring group health plans to cover all forms of contraception approved by the Food and Drug Administration, FDA. The genesis of this coverage should enlighten the court's resolution of these cases. Section A The Affordable Care Act, ACA, in its initial form, specified three categories of preventive care that health plans must cover at no added cost to the plan participant or beneficiary. Particular services were to be recommended by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, an independent panel of experts. The scheme had a large gap, however. It left out preventive services that many women's health advocates and medical professionals believe are critically important. To correct this oversight, Senator Barbara Mikulski introduced the Women's Health Amendment, which added to the ACA's minimum coverage requirements a new category of preventive services specific to women's health. Women paid significantly more than men for preventive care, the amendment's proponents noted. In fact, cost barriers operated to block many women from obtaining needed care at all. And increased access to contraceptive services, the sponsors comprehended, would yield important public health gains. As altered by the Women's Health Amendment's passage, the ACA requires new insurance plans to include coverage 
without cost-sharing of such additional preventive care and screenings as provided for in comprehensive guidelines supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, a unit of HHS. Thus charged, the HRSA developed recommendations in consultation with the Institute of Medicine, IOM. The IOM convened a group of independent experts, including specialists in disease prevention and women's health. Those experts prepared a report evaluating the efficacy of a number of preventive services. Consistent with the findings of numerous health professional associations and other organizations, the IOM experts determined that preventive coverage should include the full range of FDA-approved contraceptive methods. In making that recommendation, the IOM's report expressed concerns similar to those voiced by congressional proponents of the Women's Health Amendment. The report noted the disproportionate burden women carried for comprehensive health services and the adverse health consequences of excluding contraception from preventive care available to employees without cost-sharing. In line with the IOM's suggestions, the HRSA adopted guidelines recommending coverage of all FDA-approved contraceptive methods, sterilization procedures, and patient education and counseling for all women with reproductive capacity. Thereafter, HHS, the Department of Labor, and the Department of Treasury promulgated regulations requiring group health plans to include coverage of the contraceptive services recommended in the HRSA guidelines, subject to certain exceptions. This opinion refers to these regulations as the contraceptive coverage requirement. Section B. While the Women's Health Amendment succeeded, a countermove proved unavailing. The Senate voted down the so-called Conscience Amendment, which would have enabled any employer or insurance provider to deny coverage based on its asserted religious beliefs or moral convictions. That amendment, Senator Mikulski observed, would have put the personal opinion of employers and insurers over the practice of medicine. Rejecting the conscience amendment, Congress left health care decisions, including the choice among contraceptive methods, in the hands of women with the aid of their health care providers. Part 2 
any First Amendment free exercise clause claim Hobby Lobby or Conestoga might assert is foreclosed by this court's decision in Employment Division, Department of Human Resources of Oregon, v. Smith, 1990. In Smith, two members of the Native American Church were dismissed from their jobs and denied unemployment benefits because they ingested peyote at and as an essential element of a religious ceremony. Oregon law forbade the consumption of peyote and this court, relying on that prohibition, rejected the employee's claim that the denial of unemployment benefits violated their free exercise rights. The First Amendment is not offended, Smith held, when prohibiting the exercise of religion is not the object of governmental regulation, but merely the incidental effect of a generally applicable and otherwise valid provision. The ACA's contraceptive coverage requirement applies generally. It is otherwise valid. It trains on women's well-being, not on the exercise of religion. And any effect it has on such exercise is incidental. Even if Smith did not control, the Free Exercise Clause would not require the exemption Hobby Lobby and Conestoga seek. Accommodations to religious beliefs or observances, the court has clarified, must not significantly impinge on the interests of third parties. The exemption sought by Hobby Lobby and Conestoga would override significant interests of the corporation's employees and covered dependents. It would deny legions of women who do not hold their employers' beliefs access to contraceptive coverage that the ACA would otherwise secure. In sum, with respect to free exercise claims no less than free speech claims, your right to swing your arms ends just where the other man's nose begins. Part 3 Section A Lacking a tenable claim under the Free Exercise Clause, Hobby Lobby and Conestoga rely on RFRA, a statute instructing that government shall not substantially burden a person's exercise of religion, even if the burden results from a rule of general applicability, unless the government shows that application of the burden is the least restrictive means to further a compelling governmental interest. In RFRA, Congress adopted a statutory rule comparable to the constitutional rule rejected in Smith. 
RFRA's purpose is specific and written into the statute itself. The act was crafted to restore the compelling interest test as set forth in Sherbert v. Verner, 1963, and Wisconsin v. Yoder, 1972, and to guarantee its application in all cases where free exercise of religion is substantially burdened. The legislative history is correspondingly emphatic on RFRA's aim. In line with this restorative purpose, Congress expected courts considering RFRA claims to look to free exercise cases decided prior to Smith for guidance. In short, the Act reinstates the law as it was prior to Smith, without creating new rights for any religious practice or for any potential litigant. Given the Act's moderate purpose, it is hardly surprising that RFRA's enactment in 1993 provoked little controversy. Section B. Despite these authoritative indications, the court sees RFRA as a bold initiative departing from, rather than restoring, pre-Smith jurisprudence. To support its conception of RFRA as a measure detached from this court's decisions, one that sets a new course. The court points first to the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act of 2000, RLUIPA, which altered RFRA's definition of the term exercise of religion. RFRA, as originally enacted, defined that term to mean the exercise of religion under the First Amendment to the Constitution. As amended by RLUIPA, RFRA's definition now includes any exercise of religion, whether or not compelled by or central to a system of religious belief. That definitional change, according to the court, reflects an obvious effort to effect a complete separation from First Amendment case law. The court's reading is not plausible. RLUIPA's alteration clarifies that courts should not question the centrality of a particular religious exercise but the amendment in no way suggests that Congress meant to expand the class of entities qualified to mount religious accommodation claims, nor does it relieve courts of the obligation to inquire whether a government action substantially burdens a religious exercise. 
Next, the court highlights RFRA's requirement that the government, if its action substantially burdens a person's religious observance, must demonstrate that it chose the least restrictive means for furthering a compelling interest. By imposing a least restrictive means test, the court suggests, RFRA went beyond what was required by our pre-Smith decisions. But as RFRA's statements of purpose and legislative history make clear, Congress intended only to restore, not to scrap or alter, the balancing test as this court had applied it pre-Smith. The Congress that passed RFRA correctly read this court's pre-Smith case law as including, within the compelling interest test, a least restrictive means requirement. And the view that the pre-Smith test included a least restrictive means requirement had been aired in testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee by experts on religious freedom. Our decision in City of Bourne, it's true, states that the least restrictive means requirement was not used in the pre-Smith jurisprudence RFRA purported to codify. As just indicated, however, that statement does not accurately convey the court's pre-Smith jurisprudence. Section C With RFRA's restorative purpose in mind, I turn to the Act's application to the instant lawsuits. That task, in view of the positions taken by the court, requires consideration of several questions, each potentially dispositive of Hobby Lobby's and Conestoga's claims. Do for-profit corporations rank among persons who exercise religion? Assuming that they do, does the contraceptive coverage requirement substantially burden their religious exercise? If so, is the requirement in furtherance of a compelling government interest? And last, does the requirement represent the least restrictive means for furthering that interest? Misguided by its errant premise that RFRA moved beyond the pre-Smith case law, the court falters at each step of its analysis. 1. RFRA's Compelling Interest Test, as noted, applies to government actions that substantially burden a person's exercise of religion. This reference, the court submits, incorporates the definition of person found in the Dictionary Act, which extends to corporations, companies, associations, 
firms, partnerships, societies, and joint stock companies, as well as individuals. The Dictionary Act's definition, however, controls only where context does not indicate otherwise. Here, context does so indicate. RFRA speaks of a person's exercise of religion. Whether a corporation qualifies as a person capable of exercising religion is an inquiry one cannot answer without reference to the full body of pre-Smith free exercise case law. There is, in that case law, no support for the notion that free exercise rights pertain to for-profit corporations. Until this litigation, no decision of this court recognized a for-profit corporation's qualification for a religious exemption from a generally applicable law, whether under the Free Exercise Clause or RFRA. The absence of such precedent is just what one would expect, for the exercise of religion is characteristic of natural persons, not artificial legal entities. As Chief Justice Marshall observed nearly two centuries ago, a corporation is an artificial being, invisible, intangible, and existing only in contemplation of law. Corporations, Justice Stevens more recently reminded, have no consciences, no beliefs, no feelings, no thoughts, no desires. The First Amendment's free exercise protections, the court has indeed recognized, shelter churches and other nonprofit religion based organizations. For many individuals, religious activity derives meaning in large measure from participation in a larger religious community and furtherance of the autonomy of religious organizations often furthers individual religious freedom as well. The court's special solicitude to the rights of religious organizations, however, is just that. No such solicitude is traditional for commercial organizations. Indeed, until today, religious exemptions had never been extended to any entity operating in the commercial profit-making world. The reason why is hardly obscure. Religious organizations exist to foster the interests of persons subscribing to the same religious faith, not so for for-profit corporations. Workers who sustain the operations of those corporations commonly are not drawn from one religious community. Indeed, by law, no religion-based criterion can restrict the workforce of for-profit corporations. The distinction between a community made up of believers 
in the same religion and one embracing persons of diverse beliefs, clear as it is, constantly escapes the court's attention. One can only wonder why the court shuts this key difference from sight. Reading RFRA as the court does to require extension of religion-based exemptions to for-profit corporations surely is not grounded in the pre-Smith precedent Congress sought to preserve. Had Congress intended RFRA to initiate a change so huge, a clarion statement to that effect likely would have been made in the legislation. The text of RFRA makes no such statement, and the legislative history does not so much as mention for-profit corporations. The court notes that for-profit corporations may support charitable causes and use their funds for religious ends, and therefore questions the distinction between such corporations and religious nonprofit organizations. Again, the court forgets that religious organizations exist to serve a community of believers. For-profit corporations do not fit that bill. Moreover, history is not on the court's side. Recognition of the discrete characters of ecclesiastical and lay corporations dates back to Blackstone and was reiterated by this court centuries before the enactment of the Internal Revenue Code. To reiterate, for-profit corporations are different from religious non-profits in that they use labor to make a profit rather than to perpetuate the religious values shared by a community of believers. Citing Bronfeld v. Brown, 1961, the court questions why, if a sole proprietorship that seeks to make a profit may assert a free exercise claim, Hobby Lobby and Conestoga can't do the same. But even accepting arguendo, the premise that unincorporated business enterprises may gain religious accommodations under the Free Exercise Clause, the court's conclusion is unsound. In a sole proprietorship, the business and its owner are one and the same. By incorporating a business, however, an individual separates herself from the entity and escapes personal responsibility for the entity's obligations. One might ask why the separation should hold only when it serves the interest of those who control the corporation. In any event, Braunfeld is hardly impressive authority for the entitlement Hobby Lobby and Conestoga seek. The free exercise claim asserted there was promptly rejected on the merits. 
the court's determination that RFRA extends to for-profit corporations is bound to have untoward effects. Although the court attempts to cabin its language to closely held corporations, its logic extends to corporations of any size, public or private. Little doubt that RFRA claims will proliferate, for the court's expansive notion of corporate personhood, combined with its other errors in construing RFRA, invites for-profit entities to seek religion-based exemptions from regulations they deem offensive to their faith. We've finished the first half of this opinion, but don't worry, the next episode will pick up exactly where this episode ended.